making sense of EU. Welcome to Making Sense of EU, a podcast where scientific research sheds light on the pressing issues of EU affairs. Making Sense of EU is brought to you by the Institut de Tutorben of the Université Libre de Bruxelles. This series on the challenges of liberal democracy in the EU is a product of the Horizon Europe research project Red Spinel and it's co-funded by the European Union. My name is Maria Isabel Solevila and I am your host. One of the instruments of the European Union that provokes dissensus among member states is conditionality. A tool for accountability for some, a threat to sovereignty for others, conditionality has been transforming EU governance. But how? To help us make sense of conditionality and its use in EU governance, we welcome professors Cristina Fasone and Marta Simoncini, both from Luis Guido Carli University. We met during the Council for European Studies conference in Reykjavik, Iceland, where they were presenting the first results of their research for a Horizon Europe Red Spinal project. Cristina Fasone is Associate Professor of Comparative Public Law and Director of the BA Program in Politics, Philosophy and Economics of the Department of Political Science. Her research focuses on parliamentary democracy in Europe, constitutional adjudication, and national and EU budgets. Marta Simoncini is an assistant professor in administrative law, also at LUIS. Her research interests cover European law and administrative governance in the checks and balances applicable to discretion, especially in the context of risk-based regulation. Welcome to Making Sense of EU. First, let's start to explain in simple terms to our audience, what is conditionality? Conditionality is a governance device. It refers to spending conditions which are prescription of conduct, and there is a financial sanction or an additional benefit connected to their compliance. So it's a method of governance which is alternative to traditional legal rules, baked up with sanctions. And so if you want to get financial resources, you need to comply with these spending conditions. And then spending conditions can also serve different purposes. For instance, under the Next Generation EU package and the Recovery and Resilience Facility in particular, they are aimed at implementing new policy lines, for instance, like the green transition, and so they serve a policy implementation function. On the other hand, we have macroeconomic conditions, which instead pursue a much more structural function, so to implement coordination of the economic policies of the member states and so to make institutional reforms. And then there is also the rule of law conditionality, which is an instrument to protect the EU financial interests and the sound financial management of the EU budget through the protection of any EU critical EU values like the rule of law is. So in a way, it's kind of a game of sticks and carrots. You do what you're supposed to do and you'll get a reward, but if you don't, you'll be punished. But it's relatively new, and according to your research, it also is really visible. It's relatively new to see this within member states. What was really interesting to see for me as a European who's also a non-European was to see that all of these started mostly with external action and in trade agreements, in, in the relation with third countries. Conditionality sort of started like this. 
And then moving on to a more internal circle, it became something really important during the enlargement process, especially when the countries from the communist bloc entered to sort of push democratic reforms. But it's more recent that this has been applied to EU member states and in innovative ways. This is what you have been um, investigating. So how was it used in the EU now? You've explained, Professor Simoncini, some of the instruments, but what are those policy intentions behind it and how is it used in the EU today? Conditionality is a quite a flexible instrument, therefore can be used in a variety of different policy sectors, ranging from environmental policy to cohesion policy, which is the main field in which conditionality consolidated throughout the year as an instrument to direct EU internal governance. And more recently, it has become applied also to macroeconomic conditions, so to push national budgets in the direction that is more in line with uh, the EU standards for the European Economic Constitution, that is to say, to ensure that a certain deficit limit, uh, if not uh, a balanced budget, is respected and to try to reduce as much as possible the public debt. And this part was really visible during the Eurozone crisis. Exactly. The Eurozone crisis, in our view, has been a real turning point for the use of conditionality. The situation in some member states was really dramatic in terms of capacity to economically react to the debt challenge and that entailed the ask and the support through financial assistance in exchange for quite strict condition. So strict conditionality became widely practiced with some controversial outcomes because the lenders wanted to make sure that the money was spent in a sustainable way and uh, specific uh, adjustment programs, that is to say very complex program requiring specific reforms, not just of the economic sector, but also of the public administration, anti-corruption measures had to be taken, even judicial reforms, to make sure that the whole uh, national system could have been more sustainable in the future and to ensure that the money could be brought back to those who had lent. And this very strict approach generated a lot of polarization. You had really strong opposition in countries that were rejecting, and remember a lot of austerity was the key word of the times. I remember there was a lot of opposition of the countries that were trying to get the help, an imposition that was really, really tough on the other end. What did this do to conditionality as an instrument? How did it become something different from what it was then? You said it's a transformative moment for conditionality. Conditionality is always the same kind of tool, of legal tool that can be used. What is changing is the context where spending conditions are used. So under the strict conditionality, probably the stick was much more visible than the carrot. And now under the next generation EU, instead the carrot probably are much more visible than the stick. In the end, using conditionality as a tool of internal governance also involves some new burdens on the states within their own legal orders and also in relation to the EU and the relationship between the EU and the state. And this is probably when some of the strongest contestation comes in, people or states or representatives that feel that this is an intermission in their sovereignty and in their own internal boundaries or internal governance. How does the 
the census play in that context? Indeed, conditionality is an instrument of, that is contested and uh, controversial in the relationship between member states and between member states and the institution, but also in domestic politics. We have seen uh, also coalition governments discussing heavily how to use conditionality because it's an instrument based on bargaining and negotiation. So formally speaking, there's no imposition of conditions. The conditions are agreed by both parties, but of course... Uh, there Sometimes is, it feels they don't have a lot of choices. It seems that there is always a weak party <laughs> in the bargaining, making the acceptance of some conditions somewhat compulsory. If we consider, for example, the case of Poland and Hungary, in particular Hungary with some super milestones, so specific uh, objectives uh, in terms of judicial reforms, reforms of many freedoms that needs necessarily to be achieved in exchange for the disbursement of funds the disbursement of funds to be waived now because it has been suspended through the rule of law conditionality regulation. Another element that has been controversial traditionally is the monitoring system of conditionality because in order to be effective, uh, the EU and other institutions have to check how the money is spent, but also whether the conditions are fulfilled. And in some cases, the monitoring system has been very intrusive as it used to be under the economic and financial assistance, for example, to Greece, to Portugal, which is still ongoing, and in other cases is perceived as a bit softer. Of course, uh, conditionality is uh, an alternative to strict limitation of sovereignty, which could be achieved through hard law instrument. So the perception is that we have soft tools but in fact, the final aim, but also the way the relationship between national and new institutions is shaped, tend to be not much different from what you see when you have a limitation of sovereignty. It almost looks like two sides of the same coin. During the Eurozone crisis, very strong, very strict, very intrusive. Now, with a new generation EU and the Recovery and Resilience Facility, much more political, subtle, but still with some strong constraints. If you had to, besides just a stick and carrots analogy, describe the differences between these two moments of conditionality and these two approaches to the same instrument, what would you list as the main differences? The first difference we can uh, detect between a strict conditionality during the Eurozone crisis and the next generation EU package has to do with the more cooperative dimension or attitude we see between EU institutions and member states and also the solidaristic approach to some extent because after all next generation EU is meant to foster the recovery from the pandemic from various perspectives. Whereas uh, during the Eurozone crisis, we used to see a more top-down approach. Also different is the way EU funds are financed because uh, under the Eurozone crisis, they were not really EU funds. Just for a very small portion, the biggest share was given by each national budget to different international funds. Whereas here, in particular, the Recovery Resilience Facility has been largely financed through the issuance of common debt. 
And that means that there is... Um, there's ownership. There's Everybody ownership. Everyone owner. has an interest that these funds are properly spent, that they are well monitored, and that they finally achieve the objectives for which they were originally conceived. Under this new next generation EU package and the recovery, resilience and facility in particular, governance by conditionality is strategically based on uh, negotiation between the states and the EU. And this means that conditions are strategically designed as political instruments, so conferring wide discretion on EU institutions in particular, so that they can adapt and shape also the plans according to the needs and also the political feasibility of reforms for the member states, while requiring them also to make some changes, of course. So in theory, both Next Generation EU and the Recovery and Resilience Facility are about protecting the EU budget, but in practice, it seems their application can be much more political, and you have mentioned a few examples. But what are the ups and downs of politics being so present in the application of conditionality instruments? The problem of being so political is that it might create some legal risks in the use and the application of conditionality. This comes with wide discretion conferred on the EU institutions. So it's not easy to understand how EU institutions will use this wide discretion and so to predict the effects of the application of a measure or not. This means basically that you can have different treatment of even similar situations like the case of Poland and Hungary. And you also have the fact also that the negotiation between the states and the commission is at the art of the procedure also brings about some problems with transparency of the process and also some what is called competence creep. So the EU is getting new voice in areas of national policies connected to economic development and industrial policies in particular. And this means that there is sort of, you know, vertical construction of national policies, which is going towards a sort of federalization in the use of money, at least. And this is blurring, okay, the, the line of competence between states and the EU. I would like to add something on the positive side, because as Marta already mentioned, one positive element is certainly flexibility. We have seen a lot of flexibility already applied in macroeconomic conditionality in the past, but it is needed to better fine-tune the instrument to the specific circumstances of the time. As you already mentioned, the geopolitical context has changed, and so that might need some adaptation. Let's also not forget that next generation EU, and in particular the Recovery Resilience Facility, has a fixed time frame because it needs to be used by 2026. So it's clear that we are now seeing and watching the core of the implementation of uh, the Recovery Resilience Facility. Another positive note, in my view, is that for the first time, maybe we are slowly realizing that the budget is not just the EU budget, is not just uh, a mere technical instrument we might use from time to time, but it can become also a powerful political tool to make sure certain pending reforms really expected at the national level are finally implemented and is becoming also an instrument for redistributing resources. And if the rule of law conditionality regulation 
becomes a successful instrument, for the first time, it also managed to link the resources of the EU to the implementation of fundamental values, protection of fundamental rights, uh, uh, protection of separation of powers. So we can also see a new understanding of the budget through spending conditionality. If you agree with the policies of the EU institutions, you tend to see this conditionality as a positive way of pushing values and, and ideas that we agree with. But if you're on the other side of the spectrum, you would see this as an intermission to sovereignty, and this creates a lot of tension in this relationship. How do you see things evolve? Now we are evolving towards a system where apparently conditionality has become a systematic tool for the EU uh, integration next to others. But we should be also very cautious in the way it is used. As other federal experiences have taught us, one problem that conditionality, for example, in the US has faced is the problem of coercion. So through conditional federal spending, the federation could impose some policies to be implemented. And that is something that, especially in the context of EU, with the principle of conferral and the treaties, uh, we cannot uh, do. And the Court of Justice, in a famous uh, twin rulings on the rule of law conditionality regulation, has made clear that conditionality is not broadening the powers of the EU. Perhaps is changing the scope of the action to make sure that uh, everyone who has a status as member is also loyal to the specific principles and fundamental values that you sets in Article 2. In the context of our Red Spinal project that's studying emerging dissensus, but also the supranational instrument and norms of the European Union to, to face it, in the face of this contestation of liberal democracy, why do you think it's important to study conditionality? It's an instrument that, especially after next generation EU, is linking the contestation, but also the implementation of the rule of law to spending resources. So it has become, after the failure of other instruments, even hard law instruments, to foster compliance with the rule of law, to make sure, maybe in a subtle way, that some member states especially are nudged towards the path for rule of law compliance. It has become, however, so it's central to that spinel, according to me, because uh, it fosters the census for how it is framed, how it is implemented. So we have the census between the member states, between the West and the East, but also within <laughs> the member states, because political parties have different position vis-à-vis -vis conditionality. It is an instrument that is worth studying because it is an ambiguous instrument. And so if we think that the devil is in the details... Maybe on purpose, right? Maybe on purpose. It's an extremely ambiguous device that can be used to, you know, to orient or reorient national economic policies and, in general, the EU economic development... So I think, indeed, it's an instrument that should get attention from scholarship, first of all. And from there, of course, it should be studied because it is 
potentially able to promote dissensus in the national systems and among the people. We really look forward to see how your research evolves also in this matter in the upcoming episodes of Making Sense of EU and during the Red Spinal Project. Thank you very much, Professors Marta Simoncini and Cristina Fasone, for sharing your insights with us today on a topic that is really takes a lot to understand because maybe it's a little blurry on purpose, but it's also very close to everyday life. Citizens will feel the impact of all these different negotiations that go on behind the scenes to have an impact not only on the economy, but also on the rule of law, on human rights, and a lot of the things that we take so, so dear to heart. Thank you very much. Making sense of EU.